Uh, We are in Romans chapter 11, if you'll open with me. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to warn you right off off the bat, there's a lot going on in Romans chapter 11. Peter, (laughs) Peter, even in his letter, said that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. Not because Paul is trying to be heady or... uh, Uh, too theologically deep for people to understand, but Paul, through the power of the Spirit, had a deep understanding of the nature of God, and as he expresses it, sometimes it's hard to to grasp where he's going. And again, there's a lot going on here. Paul is going to touch on his personal testimony, that he's going to bring in Elijah in the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He's going to talk about Israel's rejection of the true Messiah. He's going to talk about God's rejection of Israel and God blinding the Israelites and what it means to to have a hardened heart. There's just a lot going on. So I want to come back a little bit to the first weeks of our study in Romans and kind of remind you what Paul's intent is as he writes this letter to the church in Rome. Remember, he's writing to believers. And sometimes as you read the book of Romans, you're like, well, he's kind of preaching to the choir, isn't he? There's definitely an evangelical tone. He's calling people to repentance that, has only, that have already repented. So why, why does he write in this fashion to the church? And there were three reasons why, uh, or three uh, goals Paul had in writing the letter to the Romans. One, to stir up adoration. That's something that I, I wholeheartedly believe there's not enough of in the church today, and there's not enough of in my own life today. Just true adoration and gratitude for what God has done to bring us into a right relationship with him. How God has orchestrated all of human history to testify that Jesus is his only begotten son. He lived a perfect life. He took our sins upon himself, was crucified on the cross, died a death that only a guilty man should have died, yet he was innocent but then he demonstrated his power over death when he rose again three days later. So as Paul writes to the church of Rome, he's giving them uh, reasons to adore God, to fall in love with him. He also wants to encourage them to go out and take this message to the world. Sometimes there's a mindset of it's me and mine and no one else. I've got my ticket to heaven. I don't need to be concerned about what's going on in the world, especially when the world seems like a dangerous place, when there seems to be so much division and hatred, especially pointed at believers. But Paul uses the book of Romans to stir up a desire not to be of the world, but to realize that we are in this world And we're in the world for a purpose, and that's to carry the message of Jesus Christ. And finally, as we'll see again in not just the book of Romans and not just chapter 11, we remember that the church, the early church especially, it was made up of two groups that throughout history, they simply did not get along. It was Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people saw themselves as the chosen people of God, and it's strange that now God is saving these Gentiles. Remember, Gentile was a term for anyone who was not a Jew. 
And so now there's these centuries of deep-seated hatred that the Spirit of God is working through to unify the church, to be one mind, one body, and in that, unify, in that unity, they testify of the power of the Spirit of God. So remember, adoration, mission, and unity. That's why Paul is writing this letter, and we're going to see all three things in play as we approach Romans chapter 11. Now remember, in Romans 9 and 10, who has Paul turned his attention to? He's been talking to the Jews. And you hear in his heart that he's a broken man when it comes to his brethren. His heart breaks because for the most part, the Jewish people have rejected the coming Messiah or the Messiah that has come. They have, re- they have rejected Jesus. In Romans chapter eight, Paul celebrated all that God had done to make mankind right with him. He talked about this amazing reality that there's no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. And then he closed that with the beautiful reality that there's no separation for the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he laments at the reality that the Jewish people have rejected this. That they've rejected the love of God and the grace of God shown through his son. And he makes an incredible statement. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Essentially, if that means that my brothers would be saved. What, what a astonishing thing to say that has nothing to do with Paul looking at his salvation and thinking of it as something not valuable. It reflects his heart that he deeply desires to see his brothers, the Jewish, uh, the nation of Israel uh, become born again. In chapter nine, Again, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. And he repeats in chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So he writes to the church that Israel is still a mission field. Israel still needs Jesus. But he closes his letter in chapter 10 that even though they need Jesus, they continue to reject Jesus. So as we come to chapter 11, he now poses a question. He says, because of Israel's continued disobedience, because of their continued pursuit of righteousness through the law, and their continued rejecting of Jesus as the Messiah, has God cast his people away? That's his question. Has God rejected Israel since Israel has rejected God? Are they no longer his chosen people? And really the question underneath Paul's question is, if God makes a covenant, will he break that covenant? That's an important question, isn't it? Because we live under a new covenant where God has promised to us that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart 
that Jesus, Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus we see in the scriptures is the son of God and he died and he rose again and we pledge our allegiance to him. We trade that old life for a new one in him that our eternity is sealed. We become a new creation. We're given a new identity. That's the new covenant. But Paul asks an important question. Does God break his promises? because he has made a number of covenants with the nation of Israel. But now that Israel is rejecting God, and Paul is talking about God rejecting Israel, what does that mean for God's promises and his covenants? Paul wrote in Romans 9, 4, he talks about the Israelites. He says, the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, the covenants and the promises. One commentator sums up these promises as the promise to redeem them, to give them a glorious kingdom, to give them peace from all their enemies in the fullness of blessing. And we could spend all morning on all the promises that God has given to the nation of Israel. But again, how do you reconcile those promises with the fact that Israel is rejecting the only way to the Father. Because Paul has made it abundantly clear that salvation and redemption comes through Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. And the nation of Israel is still stuck on this idea that somehow, through our good works, we can be made right with God. To this day, they look at Jesus, the Messiah, as an easy way out. So where does that leave the Jewish people? Now some teach, and this is called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel in all of those promises. That God has erased them as his chosen people, and we as the church replace them And we now are beneficiaries of all the covenants of God. That's a scary proposition, not just for Israel, but for us. Because if we believe that theology, we believe that God can and will go back on his word. So Paul doesn't wait to answer his own question. Romans 11, 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Some of your Bibles say, God forbid. If your Bible says that, get a different Bible. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But the translator used the word God where God does not appear. The phrase is the strongest negative in the Greek language, and it means certainly not. We're going to learn three things about God's rejection of Israel, that it's only partial, that's number one, It's purposeful, meaning God has a plan in the midst of their rejection. God's doing something amazing in the midst of their rejection. So it's partial, it's purposeful, and it's passing, meaning that it's temporary. We're looking forward to the day that there's a great revival amongst the Jewish people. Now Paul begins 
Again, I say then, has God cast away his people? He doesn't wait to answer that question. Certainly not. And he's going to begin by giving two examples that God has not cast away his people. And who does he start with? This is, this is so cool, I think. Because the theme for the youth summer camp was testify. It was about considering our testimony and that those who are found in Christ, God desires to give a a good testimony through them. And not just a good testimony, a testimony where others look at their lives and say, man, I want that. I'm envious of that. I'm jealous of that. And that's how Paul starts. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul starts out by saying, look at me. Has God cast away his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel? I'm an Israelite, and look at me. I'm a child of God. I'm a Jew, I'm of the seed of Abraham, I'm of the tribe of, ben- of Benjamin, and I stand before you right now, right with God, in a right relationship with God, and I'm partaking of all God's promises and all of God's covenants to the nation of Israel. Paul's saying that his salvation is proof that some Jews would still take part in that promise of redemption and all the blessings that come with it. Not all of Israel had been set aside. There's that partial. The rejection of Israel is only partial. In fact, Paul's, think back to Paul's conversion experience. If you remember Paul, when he was referred to as Saul, was going around persecuting the church, throwing Christians in jail, having them arrested simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that he did it with great zeal and eagerness. He thought he was doing God's work. And on that road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goad? Why are you kicking against me? And Saul said, who are you? He didn't even know the God that he thought he was serving. Let me give you the story in Acts 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he found, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Paul, anyone have a similar experience? Anyone else born again because you were on the road to Damascus or the road to Peoria and a bright light blinded you and a voice from heaven said, Elliot, Elliot. (laughs) It's a unique 
conversion experience, and it's unique in Scripture as well, but it's prophetic. It's prophetic. It's prophetic, and it points to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had a tendency to kill their prophets. The nation of Israel had a tendency, when God sent a messenger, that messenger would be persecuted. So here's Paul or Saul, a reflection of the nation of Israel, persecuting the early church, and a light shines from heaven. Jesus makes himself known, and Paul repents and believes, and that points forward to the nation of Israel one day repenting and believing. And you might say, well, pastor, that's kind of a stretch. Well, not for Paul, because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he writes to young Timothy, and he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul uses himself as proof that God's setting aside of the nation of Israel is only partial. There are still Jews that are becoming born again as they hear the message of the gospel. Now look at chapter two. Paul uses himself as an example, and now he's gonna turn back to the Old Testament. And he says in verse two, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the script, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? That's a strange thing to do for a prophet of God. But here's Elijah pleading with God against Israel. And this is what he's saying. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? What does God say back to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, there is a what? a remnant according to the election of grace. Why is Paul going all the way back to the Old Testament to use an example of Elijah to prove that Israel is only partially being set aside? Well, you guys remember the events that preceded Elijah saying, God, wipe them out. (laughs) God, I'm done with this nation. If you'll recall, King Ahab was on the throne in Israel. And he was married to a woman named Jezebel. She was a wicked, wicked woman. And this evil power couple devastated the priests and the prophets, had them executed, had them killed. And only a a remnant of the prophets were hidden away. And And Elijah one day appears before King Ahab. And it's interesting, Elijah walks in, King Ahab sees him, and you know what King Ahab says? Oh, it's you, the troubler of Israel. That's how much of a fool this man was. He's killing the priests and the prophets of God, and he calls a prophet of God a troubler of Israel. But the boldness that it took Elijah to appear before this man and his wicked wife, Jezebel. Any of you have daughters named Jezebel? None? Surprising. This is what Elijah says to King Ahab. 
Go gather all the Israelites to Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. Go get all 450 of them and get your prophets of the idols too, 400 of them. That's 850 who eat at Jezebel's table. See, they were idol worshipers. They had replaced the one true God and worship of the one true God with just idolatry. Gods made with human hands, gods that they could control, gods that they could tell what to do. And so Elijah says, get all of them. Get all of your priests and your prophets that serve all of these idols and meet me on Mount Carmel. And once they got there, Elijah had them set up an altar with a sacrifice and told these false prophets to pray to Baal to ignite the sacrifice. This is your God, Baal. Set up an altar to him, put a sacrifice on the altar and call down fire from heaven if your God is alive. And so all day long, you guys know the story, the prophets called out to their God and surprisingly, the God did not respond. So they yelled louder and louder and then they began to scream and they began to cry and they began to cut themselves. If that's what you need to do to get your God's attention, you need a different God. They began to cut themselves to get his attention. And what did Elijah do? He stood back and he just provided commentary. He's like, well, well, maybe he's sleeping. Or maybe he's busy doing something else. He even says, maybe he's in the bathroom right now. Maybe he's on vacation. And finally they give up. And it was Elijah's turn. And so Elijah had an altar built. He put the sacrifice on the altar, but that wasn't enough. He had the prophet soak the altar over and over and over again until there was a trench of water surrounding the altar. And he cried out to God and God burnt up not just the sacrifice, but the altar and the water and nothing remained. Man, that's a dramatic victory. Elijah's probably thinking to himself, there's no way they can deny the power of God now. Israel's coming home. Did they? Nope. Jezebel instead puts a hit out on Elijah. No repentance, no remorse, and Elijah flees. And they begin to complain. And and as he flees, I mean, I understand this. You know, I've had these moments in loss and my loss was nothing like Elijah's loss. I've had struggles in ministry and they're nothing compared to seeing this kind of victory and no repentance. And so Elijah runs, Jezebel's after him and he sits down and he complains to God. And what does he say? I'm in this all by myself, God. I'm all alone. God, you're almost out of business here because once I'm dead, there's no one left who's gonna stand for you. See, in Elijah's mind, God had abandoned his people. And what does God say to Elijah? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was blind to the fact that there were 7,000 Israelites 
that still trusted God and would not bow a knee to these false idols. And that's what Paul makes reference to. He's speaking to the church here and some of the remnant of Jews that are trusting that God has done exactly what he says he has done. He has sent a Messiah and that Messiah has taken on their sins. And those Jews may have felt alone because the majority of Jews were rejecting the message of the gospel. And that's the second assurance. There has been and there always will be a remnant of Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We call them today Messianic Jews. And again, they remind us that God has not set aside the nation of Israel. There is a remnant, there was a remnant in Elijah's time, in Isaiah's time, in Ezekiel's time, in Daniel's time during the Babylonian captivity, captivity, in Nehemiah's time, and there's a remnant today. But I think there's also, again, a message for the church here. Do you ever wonder, where are all the Christians? How does our nation look the way that it has? Sometimes we can get tunnel vision and we can look at our church and we're like, we're the only ones teaching the Bible. We're the only ones that truly believe that this is the inerrant word of God. You can start start to develop this pride about your church family, but the reality is the global church is still alive and well. There are many who have not bowed a knee to Baal. And we need to keep that in mind as we pray for the global church. So Paul says, look at me and look at what God said to Elijah. God has set aside Israel, but it's only a partial setting aside. Okay, look at verse six. Remember what he said there at the end of verse five. That remnant those 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, ba- knee to Baal, they're a remnant not because they were men who were uniquely righteous, that they were jumping through the hoops of the law. Paul says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of what? Grace. Just like Abraham They had believed and God accounted it to them as righteousness, salvation through faith by God's grace. So that's why Paul says in verse six, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Again, he's gonna remind the early church of something. Guys, grace is not works and works is not grace. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you add just a drop of works to the grace of God, it is no longer grace. If we add just a drop of, okay, the road to heaven or the road to the Father is by his grace, but you gotta give just a little bit of effort. Guys, it's no longer grace anymore. And that's hard to hear. You might think, oh, that's too easy. It's not. Laying down your life is not easy. Trading in the old life for a new life, that's not easy. Receiving the gift, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But it is by God's grace 
alone. If it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Underline this. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. If you want to, I'm not telling you what to do. Some of you like your Bibles clean, that's fine. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Are you guys still with me? Again, Paul's going deep here. What's Paul saying? Israel... It's not that Israel isn't seeking after God. We were talking about this before the service. It's not that Israel has abandoned God. They are zealously seeking after him. They are seeking the righteousness of God. That's a good thing, isn't it? Let me tell you, I'm gonna make a claim. You don't have to agree with it. I believe every human being that ever has been and ever, ever will be has this desire in them for the righteousness of God. I believe that we have been created with that desire, that we are seeking it. We are seeking that heaven on earth, if you will. The question is, where do we think we're going to obtain it? Secularism says it's going to be through our own ingenuity, our own human effort, our intelligence, that we have it within ourselves to bring about heaven here on earth. It's the kingdom of God without the king, right? And then every other world religion, including Judaism, says we are right with God with some mixture of grace and works, right? So all of the world is seeking after the righteousness of God, including Israel, as Paul says here, But when they were given the option of obtaining righteousness through faith in Jesus or obeying or or obtaining it through their own works, what did the majority of Israel choose? What did the Jewish people choose? They chose works and they continue to do that to this day. They tried so hard to please God that they missed their need for grace. So ask yourself this question, why? Why would we choose that? Why would we put our justification, our redemption, our righteousness, why would we put that on our own shoulders? And the simple answer is pride. We think that we somehow are capable of making ourselves right before God. What a crazy idea that is. See, if you have a conversation with an Orthodox Jew, Orthodox Jew, they think that by, faith, by putting our faith alone in Christ as our road to salvation, that that somehow will lead to an immoral life. 
that if, if Jesus is our propitiation for our sins, he's our payment for our sins, we put all of our sins upon him and he takes them because he loves us, then we have no motivation to live a life that's pleasing to God. And as an Orthodox Jew, they have a desire to please God because their righteousness is in their works. Does that make sense? And my response to that is, who do you think you are? That you can be good enough to stand before a perfectly righteous God. How, what kind of a low view of God do you have to have to think that in our flesh we can be good enough to stand in his presence? We see that in not just Judaism, but so many religions today, sincerely seeking after God, yet at the same time rejecting him. Sincerely wanting to please him, but rejecting his love and his grace shown through Jesus Christ. And look at what Paul says the consequence of that is. The consequence for rejecting Christ, they became what? Blind, deaf, and they were given a spirit of stupor. You guys use that word this week? It means, it means dull. You don't feel anymore. It means a hard heart. Not, nothing moves you anymore. That's religion, guys. That's works-based righteousness. That is secularism, bringing about the kingdom of God without the king. You can be as righteous as you think you need to be, but the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to be blind, deaf, and dumb. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I lived in that. You're dull. You don't feel. You don't have the eyes of God. You don't have the heart of God. Some commentators call this a judicial hardening. Have you ever struggled with that? Can Can we look back to Pharaoh for a second? We read that as Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and said no. And every time Moses asked, we read that Pharaoh would harden his heart. But pretty soon the verbiage changed. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever struggled with that? And now we're reading that God is blinding the Israelites? That God is blinding the Jewish people? That doesn't seem fair, does it? What does that mean? Some commentators call it a judicial hardening. It's the natural consequence of rejecting the grace and love of God. So, Why hardened hearts that are already becoming hardened? Why blind eyes that are already blind? I don't think there is anything more dangerous to a human being. I know this is kind of a dramatic statement, but I I believe this. There is nothing more dangerous to a human being than mediocre spirituality. Spiritual mediocrity. being lukewarm. So what, what is that? What's spiritual mediocrity? It doesn't mean people who are born again that aren't just on fire for the Lord. That's not what I'm talking about. And we'll look at Revelation. That's not what Revelation is talking about either in chapter three. What does it mean to be lukewarm? 
What did Jesus say? I have not come to heal those who are well, but those who are sick. Well, who's well? Was Jesus saying that some people are well and they don't need him? No. Humanity is sick. We've, we're sick with what's known as sin. All of us. So who was he referring to? Those who thought everything was okay. And there's this scary segment of our population who lives good, moral lives, and they seek to please God by the way that they act, but they've rejected his son, Jesus Christ, but they're experiencing all the blessing of living a moral life. There is natural grace in this world. If you enter into the covenant of marriage and you follow biblical principles of how to stay married, how to love one another, how to serve one another, you may reap some good fruit and still reject Christ. You may gain the world and still lose your soul. The hardest people to share faith with are those who feel like they have nothing to be saved from. And that's the danger of Judaism. It's a good moral life. In fact, there's a lot of things that really run uh, in step with Christianity of what's important and what's valuable. But if you miss Jesus, you miss it all. And if you don't know that you're dying in your sin because you're living the good life and you're financially successful and you have a happy home and life isn't perfect, but you think that you have God's blessing, what a dangerous place to be. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle because when you're wealthy, sometimes you think, I'm good, I have God's favor but you've gained the world and you've lost your soul if you've missed Christ. This is what we read in Revelation 3.14. And again, I've heard this apply to born-again believers who just may not feel that fire they once had. And I would say, no, you're, you're taking someone else's medicine. This passage is not for you. Let's look at it. Revelation 3.14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write this. These things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your, what? Works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I beg you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent." That is not a message to born again children of God. That is to those who think that everything is okay and they think that they have need of nothing. And God says, I will harden their hearts so that they would experience the fullness of being separated from me. That is a hard prayer, isn't it, for your kids? If they're rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ, 
Lord, do whatever it takes to bring them home. And that's the hardening, that's the the blinding of the eyes, that they would feel the full weight of their rejection, that there is no life apart from the vine. Martin Luther once said, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. The law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. All right, man, we are running out of time. Look at Romans eleven eleven. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Have they stumbled? Has the nation of Israel stumbled so that they should fall? Meaning, have they stumbled so much so that God has completely cut them off? Certainly not. But through their fall, now again, things get a little fuzzy here because of the way we translate it, but the second word fall, through their fall, is not the same as the first. Because then it would read, they've stumbled, but they haven't fallen, but even though they have fallen, okay, that doesn't make sense. But that word, second word fall, it means their lack. Through their lack, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So remember, Israel's setting aside is only partial, and we see here it's purposeful. There's a reason Israel has been set aside, and what is that reason? So salvation would come to who? To us. Now if their fall or if their lack is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness If we've all been blessed by the rejection of the gospel, think of how much more we will be blessed when there is a national revival for the nation of Israel. For I speak to you Gentiles. Now he's turning his attention to us. And as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh or are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Can I land here real quick before we close? I know this is a lot to make sense of and I don't want to lose you because this is where, really where I want to land this morning. Paul's describing exactly what we saw in the book of Acts, right? Paul would go into a new city and where would he go first? He'd go to the synagogues where the Jewish people were worshiping and he would preach in the synagogue. Sometimes Jews would come to faith in Christ Sometimes Jews would completely reject the message. But oftentimes many did not believe. Again, there were a few that did, but oftentimes many did not believe. So after he was rejected in the synagogue, where did he take the message to? Took it to the Gentiles. And so the early church, again, was this blend of some Jews and many Gentile converts. So it was because the gospel was rejected by many of the Jews that the Gentiles heard the message of the gospel. We've been blessed through their fall, through their lack. That's what Paul's saying. 
But what did this accomplish? What is, what is Paul hoping to see happen as Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ? Jealousy. Have you made a Jew jealous lately? Envy. How many of you have thought of jealousy and envy as a good thing? How many of you have thought of, of making someone else want what you have? There's something in us that says, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Here's the one time it makes sense. Listen to what John Stott writes. He says, not all envy is tainted with selfishness because it is not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. At base or at first look, envy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And whether envy is good or evil depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether one has any right to its possession. You guys catch that? Envy, whether it's right or wrong, has to do with the object of what that person wants and whether or not that person has any right to it. If that something is in itself evil or if it belongs to somebody else, we have no right to it. Then the envy is sinful. But if the something desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, then to covet it and to envy those who have it is not at all unworthy. This kind of desire is right in itself, and to arouse it can be a realistic motive in ministry. Do you understand what he's saying here? A spirit-filled life, a life that is guided by the Spirit of God, it should provoke the world to jealousy. It should provoke not only the Jewish people, but all that see it. And not only should it, here's the encouragement for us. The more we draw near to him and he draws near to us, the more we live a lifestyle that people want. And so I was left asking the question, do I provoke the same jealousy in others? Or does my life look exactly like the rest of the world's? Does my life, as I live for Jesus and as Jesus lives in me, the way I love my wife, the way I care about my family, the way I serve my church, the way I approach the loss, the way I handle my anger, the way I operate in the political sphere, the things I listen to, the things I watch, all that I am, does the world look at it and say, man, I don't get it, but I want it? Or do they look at it and say, oh, I'm familiar with that. That's the way I live too. There's a relationship with Jesus that's available to all of us that invokes jealousy and envy, but it's a good envy. It causes the world to say, yeah, I really want that. I really want that. For the sake of time, we'll continue more of this next week. But again, how neat that as our young people came back from camp learning about our testimony, and we talk a lot about testimony in the church where you come up and you share your testimony and that's vital, but what is the story we're telling the world? My message to you isn't, hey, you should clean up your life so that others want to live like you live. No, I'm saying we need to all draw closer to Jesus. It's by grace alone 
through faith alone in Christ alone that we're saved. And as we abide in the vine, what what are we told? What did Jesus say? We will bear much fruit. And the world sees that and says, man, I want that. Or they violently reject it, but let's pray. God, help us to make sense of the depths of your love. Lord, I pray against this morning idle hands. Idle minds. We know that the time that we have left here, it's far too short to waste moments. And in a world of distraction, we are all very familiar with wasting moments and wasting days and wasting months. But we know that you've set your church aside to stir the world to jealousy. That they would want a relationship with you. And I pray that we would reflect on the question, are we? (laughs) Are we provoking the world to jealousy? Or do we blend right in? Lord, help us to draw near to you. We know that you will always draw near to us. Grow us. Teach us what it means to walk in the Spirit, to listen to your voice, to find peace and rest and comfort just in your presence. You promise us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. The work has already been done and now we get a rest in you, but that rest we know isn't sitting idly by, but going where you go and doing what you do and allowing your spirit to empower and guide. Thank you for that. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.